0: Good evening, guy. What's up, Derek? Some of my closest family members who have known me my whole life say I have a very unique gift. And that gift is that I have a solid memory. What I mean by that is I have memories from when I was like four, maybe even three years old. And for a lot of people, apparently they don't have memories that go back that far. However, I have some very fond memories of being a kid growing up in Daytona. Every year in Daytona is bike week. Yep. And bike week is a big event. And my dad loved to take us down to go watch the motorcycles go up and down main street and show off. And I remember being three, four years old. We did it every year and I would sit on my dad's shoulders. And I remember the first time where I kept seeing this flag on the back of these bikes and on the back of vest and it was a very dark symbol it was a black flag and it only has white writing on it mm-hmm. and i remember being a young kid asking my dad what does that mean and he looked at me and said when you're ready you'll understand
1: i was like okay apparently I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my uh, first experience with this, was actually the first time I really ever saw it was um my dad was a motorcycle rider, went to Daytona Beach many times for Bike Week. Um was uh, actually watching Orange County Choppers with him and they uh, made a bike dedicated to this and one episode and I saw it. that was my first experience with it and I asked the same question, you know. Hey, what is that, right? And I was just, again, young kid at the time. But it doesn't stop there, right? right.
0: You see it on motorcycles, and then you go uh, drive by a VFW, mm-hmm. and it's flying high and proud. Sure. And then a lot of uh, installations, you have old glory flying, and right underneath it is this flag we've been discussing the whole time, which is the POW MIA flag. hmm So some information I shared this morning is uh, since man has been engaged in war, We have had prisoners of war. Yes. It's been a long history of it, actually. In some way, shape, or form. But it wasn't until around World War II where we really started to put faces and imagery and really numbers to this awful situation. So I believe the figure that I threw out this morning is since World War II, we have had 1,000... No, excuse me, 138,000... 103 POWs. And we also have another 81,000 missing in action. Yes. So you can break it down by war. There's statistics out there that show all of this. But from the Vietnam War, when it was all said and done, after all was repatriated, we had 591 returned from North Vietnam. When I started to learn what the POW MIA flag really was, is before I joined the military... I had a year to wait. I was in what they call the DEP program, delayed entry program. So you have to stay motivated, work out, report to your recruiter, all that stuff. And then I figured to benefit me in the career field I want to go, I should probably do a little bit of research on what this POW MIA flag is. After all, it's like the symbol of the career field I'm trying to join. So I started reading some books. Some of those books are POW by Hubble. I read In the Presence of My Enemies by Howard Rutledge. And I really started to understand what this meant. Well, we are lucky enough that tonight we have an individual who was held as a POW in North Vietnam. We have with us tonight Captain Ralph Galati. So thank you for joining us, sir. It's great to be here. Thanks. How was that intro? Uh,
2: it was uh, mellow, <laughs> but, but I could appreciate your youth. Because the flag uh, was created, I think, in 1970 and actually rolled out in 71. So, uh, obviously, you're younger than that. The amazing thing is is that it's still flying it is. in all the places yeah. you talked about, military yeah. bases and almost every federal installation and every veterans group. And and now often at uh, municipal stadiums, uh, and many of them have a POW/MIA chair of honor, uh, I just marvel at the fact that as ugly and bad as the Vietnam War was, that that flag has still persisted over 50
0: years. It's incredible. It's amazing. And I was actually hoping, we just came from dinner that on the drive out here, that we had a couple of bikes past us, and I was like, come on, someone's got to have the flag on it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you don't mind, we brought you in because we want to hear your story. Okay. So if uh, you wouldn't mind, can we start at the beginning? And I'm definitely going to be asking you questions throughout. Sure. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, start us off.
2: I'll give a shortened version. And then, if you want details, you just maybe branch off. But, but I am one of the the last group of POWs of the Vietnam War. So I was shot down in February of '72. Uh, by that time, there had been POWs there since 1964. So uh, you're right. Out of the the Hanoi era, a geography uh, 591 uh, came back. So I'm one of that and. It was different for us because we were at the tail end of the war. Basically, the last year, uh, peace agreements were signed in January of '73. I was released in March of '73. Um, so, you know, the it started with uh, Everett Alvarez in August of '64. He was number one there for eight and a half years, and then trickled down to uh, almost 400 or so, 450, through 1968, and then because of the ceasefire. There were virtually none until I think December of seventy one, and I was February seventy two, and we ended up being five ninety one. So it's a really small. It is a very small and
0: diminishing group. And what a terrible title to have, by the way, to be number one.
2: Yeah, it uh, it was probably fascinating for the North Vietnamese, and even more so for Everett Alvarez, because nobody knew what to do with them. I mean, mm. they, they, they had no ready, infrastructure. Right? Yeah, they had no infrastructure in place. They didn't even know what POWs were. Uh, and, and really they never acknowledged much because, uh, since we never, we, the Americans never declared war, uh, North Vietnamese chose never to abide by the Geneva convention. So that made life really difficult.
0: And I want to dig into that a little bit more in just a second, cause that plays a pretty important role to how the treatment was for the earlier individuals. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if you wouldn't mind before we go in further into it, um, maybe, uh, giving a, a brief back story on Hanoi and maybe the Hanoi Hilton or.
2: Yeah, I spent spent most of my time in the Hanoi Hilton and some of its associated complexes. There were several different parts of that camp. Uh, The main camp we call Camp Unity, which is where the bulk of the prisoners were. But then there was also New Guy Village and Las Vegas and Heartbreak Hotel, which all were, you know, ugly by comparison. Uh, And then I spent some time in the plantation and the zoo, which were other camps in the greater Hanoi area. Uh, You know, the challenge for everybody is just, Survival and resistance—that's the tough thing. You could go through tons of training that you guys provide now, uh, but but being there is tough. And when you have a period of isolation and solitary confinement, uh, that's the test. That's that's where you find out what you're what you're made of, and and that's the challenge of survival. Is can you put up with? Can you tolerate? interrogations and punishments and things like that when you are uh, in ill health uh, but a head injury that I had sleep deprived food deprived you know no communications no light Uh, it's hard to be a good resistor when you're not on your a-game and uh, so that that was a good test that was find out what you were made of and you know that lasted a week and then I got moved into solitary confinement, which in a sense gave me a little more creature comfort, but not much more, but still alone.
0: So I just want to take a step back real quick. So I just want to give some backstory about the Hilton and why it exists and everything, because it's not like the North Vietnamese built it for RPOWs. So what it was is the French built it, and it was, what, 1890? And it was supposed to be the the French built it for anyone that was a resistor to the French from North Vietnam. That's where the political prisoners, prisoners were housed. So for that, they already had it on standby. They had the facility there. So by the time Alvarez showed up, they had a facility, and that's where this all started. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if they moved them into the Hilton at the time, but but you're right. I mean, it'd been there for a while. I think it served as a police prison, or a, it served many different functions. Uh, and then as more and more POWs were being shot down in the 60s, they needed some place to aggregate them, and and they were reluctant at times because they there were these other camps in the outskirts of the city that they probably preferred because they held 20 or 30 at a time, which was manageable. Uh, And they didn't want to have too many people in one place. They didn't want riots. I mean, they had a, they wanted a manageable group, but when you started to get into the hundreds of POWs, they had no choice. They only had one place that was big enough to house that many people. And, and the Hilton ended up being, you know, the largest one. And and that's, uh, that's why they
1: did it. You mentioned solitary confinement. Um, while you're in solitary, like, how, what did you do to keep yourself like occupied, busy, keep so, from losing your mind? So I'll real quick,
0: you. real quick, I'm sorry. Uh, should we start at the very beginning of the story so we can just clarify like how you came to be in this situation? Because oh, we yeah. just jump straight into the yeah. let absolutely right? do that. So we should start first with that you were
1: flying in a F four.
2: Yeah, I, I had finished flight school. You know, I came out of college, went to flight training, went F four training.
1: And did you volunteer or were you? You went to RTC. Okay.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and I knew what the pipeline was. I mean, if you, you went to flight school, you know, odds are you're going to Vietnam. And then if you pick F4s, you're definitely going to definitely Vietnam. going. Um, so we, you could challenge my rationale and sanity later. But but if you're going to fly, you may as well fly. That, that was the point. That's fair. Um, so I, I ended up doing that. And then uh, in the fall, probably October of 71, finally finished all my flight schools and then made my way to Southeast Asia. And I ended up being assigned at Ubon uh, Royal Thai Air Force Base in Thailand. And I uh, started flying combat missions as a WIZO. And I was assigned in the famous 8th Tactical Fighter Wing, which is Robin Old's old wing. And, uh, you know, went through that pretty well. And, and my objective was fly every day. I mean, I'm there. I may as well fly.
0: So to clarify, WIZO
1: is a weapons systems officer. Yeah, Backseat of an f yeah. Basically, if you guys have seen Top Gun, it's the guy in the back of the F-18
2: <laughs> yeah. it's the smarter guy of the two yeah. did I
1: say that out loud <laughs>
2: no, but I speak the truth and they may as well fly I mean I was there to fly and, and that's what I did and and I had uh, went through basic you know the basic flight schools flight training and worked my way up and then at that time they were just starting laser guided bombs and our, our wing had that so I got trained for that and I ended up doing that and then toward the very end I got tapped on the shoulder to join uh, Wolf for four air controllers, which is a really select group and, and a really interesting mission. Uh, and I think I had flown one test mission and one flight. And then on my 69th mission, uh, February 16th, 1972, we were flying one of the first missions over North Vietnam in four years. Uh, and uh, we had flown for quite a while. And then all of a sudden we had a, a surfaced air missiles were starting to launch up. Uh, tried to evade those as best we could. As a forward air controller, you tend to fly really low to find targets, uh, and we found a lot of them, uh, but we missed one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you miss one at your six o'clock, that's never very good. Uh, and uh, it, it didn't hit us solid. You know, tend, they tend to get close and then they explode, and the fragmentation is what is the problem. Uh, and it was enough to take out our engines. Uh, fortunately, my pilot kept the plane under control but we were too low and too far from anything. So we couldn't make it to the ocean, couldn't make it to the jungle, couldn't make it to the south, couldn't make it to Laos, couldn't make it anywhere. Uh, so we had a controlled ejection at a, at a relatively low altitude. I think it was maybe 3,000 feet. Uh, God bless the Martin Baker Company. Ejection seats were perfect. <laughs> uh,
1: so at this point perfect. of ejecting, once you, you, know, you eject, you're in the air now. What is your first thought?
2: Well, the, my first thought is, is, you know, when you look at the airplane, you know, all your instrumentation goes to zero, you know, you got fire lights, warning lights, everything that should be a hundred percent is zero percent. Um, when you realize that you don't have your two best friends, which is altitude and airspeed, you know, you're, you're out of luck. So um, we got ready for an ejection. You know, we did our mayday call and we pulled the ejection angle and the F4 backseat goes first. Uh, and then the front seat goes. We, so the ejections were, in that, in that sense, flawless. Ejection seats opened okay. Parachutes opened okay. And now you know you're floating down with the hope that you're going to be able to do survival. Yeah. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. be able to find our way to to uh, escape this. The problem was, is and as opposed to South Vietnam, this area we were in was mostly farming country. So there were no, uh, there was no jungle.
0: So if I can ask a few questions more about the ejection. Mm-hmm. Did you sustain any flailing injuries? You, did you stay in a good, tight, tucked position? And oh yeah, we had.
2: Like any- I said, when I say it was a controlled ejection, we had time to cinch up and get your arms tucked in and your legs tucked in, so that you didn't have, you know, and some kind of decapitation. Uh, but but we were fortunate in that regard. The airplane held together, and we ejected in a good attitude, and and all those things we were able to do. And very you didn't lose consciousness. I lost consciousness uh, after somewhere up the rails somewhere with the rocket that was shooting us yeah. out and i'm guessing it might have been for 5 seconds then i was jarred back into sanity yeah. when the parachute opened yeah. and it was just kind of opening it kinda, shock yeah kind of shook you up so uh but thank god everything was automatic and that that uh, it, it worked flawlessly that was the nice thing
0: guy yeah so before guy guy, guy. What? look at his watch right now <laughs> Uh, you would not know anything special about that watch. Yeah. It's a it very is, special watch. It is
2: a, uh, Bremont, which is a British, uh, phone company, uh, yeah, phone. British, uh, watch company, but they make specialty watches for military and they have a special watch they make for their, what they call their ejectees. So there's a lot of symbolism in there. There's a lot of red. You see the band around it is red. There's a lot of symbols inside for emergency, you know, all the, all the, uh, Stuff you see in the flight line for emergencies, and then in the back there's an engraving that has your uh, ejection number, which is not uh, not a historic; it's an enrollment number, your initials, and the date you were shot down. Uh, so I got it for my kids. It's a uh, it's a very nice memento.
1: Yeah, that's pretty neat, actually. It is. <laughs> it
2: is quite. It is quite the conversation
1: piece. And how, so. how long have you had that watch then?
2: I think my kids got it for me about. Four or five years ago. Oh, okay. It's yeah, still kicking. I, I couldn't get it for myself. It's too expensive. So.
0: <laughs> so the reason I brought it up is you eject. You now have the rights to get that watch. <laughs> no one else does, man. That's right. No one else. It's
1: a uh, exclusive club. We'll it say. is.
2: And they had to prove who I was. I mean, they not, they're not going to sell it to just anybody. So I had to send all my documentation to my kids to- they had to prove who I
1: was. Oh, uh, uh. So prior to you getting the missile warning, prior to you know, your aircraft taking shrapnel, had the thought of ever actually being put in this situation yeah. ever actually hit your mind? Was, I, it, was it like, yeah, I know it's a possibility, man. but you know it's not going to happen to me. I'll be fine.
2: I'm going to answer that question. Well, I'm going to answer it because you asked it. <laughs> the key thing is I conceived of and visualized every circumstance that I saw. The one thing I could never visualize was being killed in that airplane. For some reason, that never, I just couldn't see myself dying in an airplane, either exploding or crashing. I just couldn't, for some reason, just refused to accept it. But I did visualize everything else that happened. Not, not the way it happened, but I could see myself doing all those things. So uh, I don't know if I willed myself into survival, but it was one of those things that I could not see that that was the way. And yet I had friends that, that were killed. You know, mm. so I, it, I knew it happened. It just wasn't going to happen to me.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. So you're in the air, you're floating down, you come back to consciousness.
2: Um, yeah. And I look down and of course we're very low. Right. And I noticed that there's no jungle. So there's no canopy. Uh, I also looked down and since we're very low, you had good visibility and we are floating right down into a village. Uh, I think at the far end of the village, our aircraft crashes. So let me put this in perspective. We're bombing them during Tet, which is their big holiday season. It's like bombing your neighborhood on New Year's Eve. Uh, the plane, we're bombing in that area. The plane crashes in the area. And now there's two aliens floating down into this area. Now, these are farm people. That's all they are. They're just peasant farmers. Did they ever see an aircraft? No. Did they ever see parachutes? No. No. Uh, for all we know, they were told that if you ever see two aliens flying down, you know, they're they're your enemy. Uh, so we ended up landing, like, right in a little stream, a little rivul- rivulet or something, right in the town. And I'm looking down, and the crowds are gathering. They're shooting at us as we're floating down. And... uh all I wanted to do was make a successful PLF parachute landing fall. That's all I cared about. I'm visualizing my training now, you know, tuck and twist and everything else. And
1: even with the bullets r- ripping by, you are just worried about, landing. I just wanted to, <laughs> I just
2: wanted to survive the landing. And let me, let me go back a bit. We, we all had to carry a lot of stuff on us and, you know, flight suits and G suits and pressure suits. We also had to carry a weapon, a 38, 38, uh, my pilot in the front, who that was the first time we ever flew together. Uh, he only he not only carried his thirty-eight, he carried uh, several hand grenades <laughs> that he had strapped to his life vest. I love it. I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I just want to say, yeah. Now I've been there for I've been flying for ninety days now, and I realized after my first flight that I was not going to load my gun. The odds of me shooting myself, causing an accident, or something else was, was higher than me needing this gun. And I also rationalized it by saying, if I need to pull this gun and shoot, I'm already in deep stuff. So I figured I'm not going to get shot with my own gun. So I I had the gun. I had the bullets. I just never loaded it. So I I have this successful landing. And, of course, my shoot now comes down, and I'm with my helmet on. I mean, I am fully dressed. Uh, And then the townspeople just started to beat the crap out of us. Is that okay to say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened, right? Uh, Actually, facts of the well, story. I don't know how much
2: more graphic I could be, but, but basically they were going to kill us. I mean, we had just invaded their, t- their space, their little town. And, and I still had my helmet on and everything, which saved me a little bit. Uh, the first thing they grabbed was my gun. First <laughs> thing they saw was that damn gun. Did and I remember consider- saying to myself... Thank God I did not load my gun.
0: I would have been shot with my own gun. I mean, did you consider throwing it or just getting I, rid of I it know. for that reason?
2: I was focused on a PLF. Yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. That's all I was yeah. focused on, because we already knew that we were in, in deep stuff. And then they then they start taking contraband. I, I mean, whatever you had that was worth worth it. You know, bullets, the gun, a knife, whatever you had, a life vest, my helmet. Uh, then, as soon as the helmet got taken, then. Then they start beating on us pretty good. And I remember one guy just kind of hauled off and, and clubbed me with his rifle. That was the head injury. Uh, and that went on for a bit. Uh, and I think a lot of it, though, was the, the, between the G-suit and the life vest, you know, your harness stuff, because we still had the shoot on, probably saved us from being beat to death. Uh, although they were trying to club us yeah. to death. too, so. And then this, I'll call him for lack of knowing any better, a, uh, a local militia guy or reservist came in and pretty much stopped them because he thought we're guessing that he realized who we were and that we were worth more alive to him than dead and probably was a bounty. If he could get us to North Vietnam, he would probably get a bonus or a promotion or something. I'm pretty sure that's the only thing that saved us that day.
0: So did he restrain you in any way?
2: Well, I, the last thing I remember (laughs) was being carried off because they had, they had hit my head pretty bad and it was bleeding pretty bad. And I, I remember them carrying me off. Uh, and I don't remember anything after that for a while. So they, I know they probably shaved my head, put a bandage on it. And the next thing I remember is, is being side to side with my pilot yeah. and finding that he was okay. And then we tried to chat a little bit about what's our cover story going to be. Yeah. Enough that we could do that. And, and we knew where we were. We were in the southern part of North Vietnam, just north of what's called the demilitarized zone. So we knew if they're going to take us to Hanoi, it was a long trek. And not only was a long drive in a Jeep, but we were flying through the area that our guys were still bombing. So now I forget, I survived this. Now we're, now we're going to get bombed by our own people. Uh, war is hell. It's not, it's not a pleasant thing to be in. Mm-hmm. But anyway, a day later, 24 hours or so later, we're in Hanoi. Now, we didn't know where we were. We assumed it was Hanoi. We didn't know where we were. It ended up being a piece of the Hanoi Hilton, but we had no idea at the time. But we were alive.
0: what is your thought process of you show up you know what's happening you know it's been happening since 65 right Mm -hmm. you're there what's going through your mind
2: well you know now all of a sudden february 16th i woke up and i was a wizzo in an f4 flying combat missions i knew what my mission was now it's february 17th i am god knows where Uh, i know i'm in isolation i'm separated from my pilot uh, I had nothing on. I mean, I basically, they left my flight suit on, but that was it. Uh, I could feel I had a bandage on my head, uh, and I knew now all bets were off. I mean, I could be killed in action. I could be missing in action. I had no way of knowing. People back home had no way of knowing. Uh, I didn't know if anybody saw our parachutes. We had, we had no knowledge at all. Um, it took me a while to realize that my, my life and mission had changed, so my mission now was follow the code of conduct. You know, now I was a prisoner of war. I was almost a non-combatant. Now your job is different. Uh, once you realize that, and it took a while because between the trauma and the head injury and sleep deprivation and food, you know, all those things together, you know, you're not really on your A game. <laughs> I'm not sure what the hell game you're in, but it, you weren't in your A game, and so you had to survive all that and then be interrogated at the same time and then survive that and then try to think through, you know, what the hell am I going to do next? So it took a couple of days to get over the shock and then get over the guilt and then get over the trauma. You know, you have a couple of good cries and say, let me get this out of my system. You know, now what am I going to do next? And once you realize that the game has changed, now you got to play a new game. Then, it, then it, something started to naturally fall into place and figure out ways to make it an hour at a time and at best a day at a time that's that was your
0: planning horizon did you ever feel uh that you had been in that situation before because only a few months prior you went through survival school yeah so did you ever have any confidence or oh I've, i'm okay i've been through this i know what to expect did that prepare you adequately or
2: well no survival school prepared us a lot it just wasn't the same yeah. but i mean It was better than nothing. It was good to at least have some appreciation for interrogations and understanding your limits, Uh, just making you mentally acute enough to be able to make rational decisions in in an environment when it's not rational. I mean, you're not used to this. So, you know, survival school was really good. That whole, you know, training for me, you know, my lifeblood was, was academics and training and... Uh, that was really a fortifying influence. So when you had to draw back on some strengths, you know, I talk about people have faith, you know, in yourself and in God and your family and your country. And a lot of it though was your your strength in terms of your training. When you realize what you've been trained to do uh, and you could tap into that rationally, then you could respond a little bit. So yeah, it was... It was important. It, it, it didn't cover everything to the extent that we had to put up with, but, but it was pretty realistic because by 72, well, when I went through survival training in 69 or 70, we had had, in a sense, the luxury of having some former POWs come back and, and teach the classes. So we had some sense of what to expect, and they got a little more realistic.
0: Oh, by the way, wasn't your wife nine months pregnant?
2: Yeah, when I left, she was six months pregnant. And I said, don't worry, everybody comes back. So I was a liar, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I was being truthful. Uh, I get shot down on, my daughter gets born on the 10th of February. I get shot down on the 16th of February. Okay. And then a day or so later, my wife gets a visit from a priest and a military guy, which I told her that's the one visit you don't want to get. And all they could say was he was shot down and his status is unknown. So that's, that's the family side of all this stuff, the family side, spouses especially, but families of military people, not just POWs, but family people of military people, especially those in combat and deployment is tough duty. You know, we, we train our military people pretty well. We don't train our families at all. Uh, and uh, so it was really tough when a young, whatever she was at the time, 21, 22-year-old, you know, with a baby now, you know, with this goofball that decided to finish high in his nav class, so he picked that fours.
1: <laughs> so, well, how, so how old were you during this? Uh, time? Twenty
2: three.
1: Oh wow! Think yeah, that's that's that, old.
2: Man. That's old by enlisted standards, because a lot of the enlisted guys were eighteen, nineteen, but by officer standards, you know, I was, I was a novice. I mean, I was the second youngest POW and the second most junior. You're an LT. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was dirt. I, I, that's. One of my pieces of survival, I think, was the fact that they agreed with me that I was an idiot. I was a first lieutenant. What did I know? You know, And for the most part, I didn't know much, but, if, but I knew a lot, as it turned out. I knew about laser-guided bombs. I, I knew a lot of stuff. Uh, but I think they realized that they had other fresh meat to pick on, that you know there were captains and men majors. So yeah, yeah. they did that. And, uh, and I tried to convince them. You know, I was just this dumb Italian from South Philly, you know, which convinced, plus I was a lieutenant. So there was. You you had some
0: things going for you. I actually had a lot of good things going for me. And pick
2: on some other smart guy.
0: So So, you get to the Hilton. And what, do you go to New Guy Village?
2: New Guy Village, we did our, I was in isolation there. And then I was in solitary. And then uh, I think after about a week or so, they moved me to the zoo, which was another camp. So I spent the bulk of my solitary time in the zoo. And then my pilot and I got reunited after 75 days, so two and a half months later, back at the Hilton area called Heartbreak Hotel. And and all these places were nasty. They just were nasty, dirty, ugly, filthy. Put an adjective in there. None of them good. Heartbreak was one of the worst. So it was really... Basically, a, a tele, little bigger than a telephone booth on its side. It was really, you know, eight feet long and six feet wide. And it was two, two cement beds with leg irons at the end. That was it. You know, But we had a roommate. That was the nice you thing. I had a roommate. roommate. I had some strength now. And, uh, and then we would get visited by rats, which was really good. That, that was like a third roommate. And then we had <laughs> geckos all the time. So that was a roommate. Uh, so... I'm making light of some things, but pros know, it, and
0: cons with the rats though, right?
2: Yeah, it's it it was pretty intolerable, you know, and surviving your earlier question, surviving um solitary confinement mm-hmm. is difficult cuz you you can't train for that. You could you could get a perspective for it, but until you're in it day after day after day, you don't know how you're going to do. And it 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 plays it plays with your mind. I mean, it's tough to rationalize what you're going to do when there's nothing to do for 24 hours a day and you have zero freedoms. So, well, everything you're used to, 100% of them, gone. And the story I talk about is, you know, when you have to beg for everything. When you're begging for water and food and toilet paper and anything. And and I was there in February, and it's cold in Hanoi in February. I mean, it's surprisingly cold at night. And you know, you have to see if anybody will give you, you know, a, a blanket or anything. Uh, that's that's really, a, that's a tough pill to bite on. And and it's day after day after day, 24 hours a day by yourself. So you have to figure out some way to keep your mind going and your body going. And it was tough to exercise because you don't have enough calories.
0: But you had to exercise or else you would deteriorate. And Well, that was one of the rules early on was you were not allowed to exercise. Yeah. And then they redacted that, right, around 72.
2: Yeah, well, they, they couldn't control you. I mean, if they, it wasn't like they were watching you. You do what you want. But uh, it's tough to burn calories when you don't have any calories to burn. Uh, and it's tough when you're injured. And then it's tough when you got parasitic stuff, you got GI issues. I mean, there's a lot there. And then they're interrogating you. And then you're by yourself. So that's when you start to draw on your inner strengths where – You know, you start to do recall. You remember every prayer you ever knew. You start praying, whether you're religious or not. Uh, You start singing songs to yourself. You remember books. I mean, anything you could do to exercise mind and body to keep yourself somehow focused so that if they came in to get you again, you were ready to go. So you had to always be prepared for that Interrogation.
1: So you mentioned like singing songs to yourself. Was there like a particular song you just no. had stuck in your head the whole time? I am
2: not entertaining. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I was bad in solitary and I was only marginally better as a roommate. <laughs> That's but I do remember the song that stuck in my mind, which is popular at the time was, Bye Bye Miss American Pie by Dom McLean. Great song. And I remember that. The nice thing about that song was it was like seven minutes long. So yeah. I mean, the more you can remember, it went on forever. But, you know, basically the Beatles, you know, anything you can remember from the 60s, anything you could do to kind of remind you of home or just to distract you from the environment was what you what you had to do.
0: So I asked you earlier your idea or perspective on this, that we live in a society now that we have to have constant stimulation. Mm-hmm we were waiting in line at lunch today and I just around looked and more than half the people in line were just sitting on their phones. You look around, everyone's just sitting on their phones. And so I asked you when you are in isolation, I feel so many people are scared to be alone with their own thoughts. Now, what did you do to pass that time? So for an example is uh, I got to meet Kurt muse. Are you familiar? He was uh, held in Panama by general Noriega. He Mm -hmm. was held for nine months and I asked him, what did you do to pass the time? And he said, you know what I did? I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And I looked at him and I was like, what? What?" he's like, I just, in my mind, went to the middle of the forest and I just walked a trail. Every turn was a new tree. It was a new scenery. I literally just would lay on the ground for hours and hike the Appalachian Trail. And so I always wondered, because I've heard stories of POWs that uh, built their dream home in their head, nail by nail. They played golf, Uh, you you know, chess or whatever it might be.
2: They wrote books and memoirs, you know, they remembered they tried to go back, and the Bible was a big thing. They tried; a lot of people tried to go back and, and recall readings from the Bible from when they were kids or when they were in high school or college. Uh, the mental exercise piece of it was really incredibly important, uh, and it's a it's amazing what your mind will do to your body if you let it. And you already had enough issues to contend with, so we all had fear and anxiety. We were fighting boredom. We all, even if we didn't acknowledge or enough, we all
0: had guilt issues. I wanted to bring that up, but oh, uh, maybe a little bit later. But or we can talk about it now. Guilt,
2: guilt was bad. I mean, here, I mean, it was bad for me at least. It's, and I was a young guy, but it was like, you know what? They just sent me through flight school for a year and a half. You know, they sent me into combat and everything else. What do I do? I lose an airplane, and I am lost as an asset. And and it's like, you know, that they didn't put me in here to do this, and and that was tough to for a young guy, you know, that was tough. I can imagine what it was like for some of the guys that were older, like majors and lieutenant colonels. There weren't that many of them, but, you know, here they have been they're in for 20 years. Some of them have flown in Korea and Vietnam, you know, and, and they were squadron commanders. They, you know, they had some rank, you know, and now they're shot down and it's like, you know, I had a great career. Look where I am. I should be better than this. Yeah. And And having to fight your own demons is tough on top of everything else.
0: So the two areas I like to focus on is communicate as well as organize. So it's very interesting to hear that you are such a young LT, young in your career, even young with experience. And you show up and you are surrounded by, like you said, the squadron commanders. So how fast were you able to figure out the rank structure to find out where you fit in this now organization? Yeah. And how effective were you at communicating?
2: Um, well, the code of conduct tells us very clearly that if you're senior, you will take charge. So in solitary, I was my own boss. And since I sucked, (laughs) I was my own boss. So I bossed myself around. Um, When I got a roommate, my pilot outranked me. So he was in charge of our room of two. Uh, When we started to aggregate now, because more people were shot down and they moved us into the Camp Unity, the Hanoi Hilton proper with six, eight, ten people, uh, the senior ranking guy was a Navy guy, Lieutenant Commander. He was now in charge. So it had nothing to do with branch of service. It had literally only to do with date of rank. Um, and their job was to be in charge. I mean, they represented our group, whether it was eight or 30, or if you're really senior, it could be the whole camp. I mean, it was significant, but the big thing was effective communication and maintaining a structure that we were comfortable with. And that structure was military structure. So we organized, you know, by in the Camp Unity, we had, I forget what it was, uh, five or six rooms we called. It was buildings that housed maybe uh, 200, 250 POWs. So every room that had 30 or so of us at the time was like a little squadron. There was a senior ranking officer, and then there was a guy in charge. And the job there was to communicate with everybody else about... How to best handle interrogations. Were we planning an escape? How to do this? Here's the rules of the game. We got the code of conduct, but now here's some more rules that we want to follow because our circumstances are unique. They're not following the Geneva Convention. They're trying to get you for propaganda, things that aren't clearly defined in the code of conduct. Uh, So the challenge there was to communicate from room to room, and then our young guy group, which they kept us isolated, us young guys being 1972 shoot-downs, was to update as best we could the guys that had been there from 64 to 68 and kind of give them current news uh, about anything.
0: An Uh, example of that guy is you had individuals that were held as POWs that had no idea that we landed on the moon. Right, yeah.
2: Yeah they didn't know who the president was. Uh, you know, I mean, just think about anything that went on from 64 to 70. And, and um, they almost had no news other than the propaganda that they heard. So we, we would get Hanoi Hanna, we called her the, the, the lady that would do the news that they would pipe into your room every day. And she would say, oh, well, the great people of North Vietnam shot down 10 aircraft today. Uh, and we didn't capture anybody. Was, um, no odds to that. But But that was the story. So you could imagine what it was like to be a peasant farmer, or a citizen, non-government of North Vietnam, and the only news you ever got was this propaganda organ, and that's all you knew. Which was the Americans are ugly, they're monsters, they're kill. I mean, they you know they bomb hospitals, we Mm -hmm. they bomb schools, they kill you know that. And but that's all you knew, and so our, you know, our independence and our uh access to news back in the states was so remarkably different than these third world countries that you know y- you felt bad for the average citizen you really
1: did so I'm just trying to think right now like somebody that was in that was being held since before we landed on the moon then somebody comes in and says tries to explain <laughs> that <laughs> we landed on the moon yeah <laughs> It would it would have taken a few people telling me that to, before I actually believed it, probably. Yeah, and
2: some of them were shot down before they even knew about the space program. That's I mean, insane. all they knew was Kennedy talking about it in '62, they space, but no. didn't know that it had yeah. started. So, uh, the only way you got new news was somebody got shot down after you, and you were able to communicate with them, which was tough sometimes because you were in isolation, yeah. and so you might get tidbits of news, and but but it was important because you know you, you also wanted news about your family as best you could. Uh, and, but unless somebody had a connection to your family, you know, you, you couldn't get anything. And, and, and upwards of half of the guys that I was with were still listed as missing in action. So their families didn't even know they
0: were alive. And they've been alive for years. So, and that's dangerous, right? Because mm-hmm. you want to elaborate what we talked about earlier with that? Well, you know, you don't you didn't want to
2: press the issue because you didn't want to. That's why the code of conduct was really important. I mean, it talks about name, rank, serial number, date of birth. Uh, you know, th- there's always a little bit of wiggle room in there in terms of common sense. But, but even in survival school, once you start talking, <laughs> it's like the floodgates could open. And the more you talk and you, you could say, well, I'm going to rationalize it. I'm just going to lie to them. Well, you know how hard it is to keep track of every lie you tell? It's yeah. really tough. And so a lot of guys were really rigid. And it's like the, the best you could do was, I don't remember. I don't know. I may mean, remember them asking me very specific questions that I knew they knew the answer to. Like I, one of them was, like I talked before, when you're not thinking clearly, when you're not on your A game, you could easily make a mistake. So I remember one guy asked me one time, how many C-130 gunships are on your base in Ubon, Thailand? Not are there any, how many? Yeah. And if you weren't listening, you know, you could easily make a mistake, and just to, and just tell them basically that, that their presumption was correct, yeah. that there are C-130s gunships at UBA. And, and by 1970, 72, you know, like I joke, you know, you remember the Stars and Strikes, which is the big newspaper that are available. All they had to do was read that. And, you know, interrogations were a farce. They knew more about me than I knew about me. All they had to do was read about it. They knew where I was from, what I was flying, my wife. They, they knew everything. But if you let that... Impress upon you how you could behave. Then the floodgates open, and you start to rationalize yourself. Oh, I could talk about this. I'm sure they know about that. You know, I could tell them this to avoid telling that. It's it's a really tough thing to do. Um, it, it's it's very very challenging. And and most of the POWs, if not all of them, will tell you everybody has a breaking yeah. point, either physical or mental or both. And the challenge there is once you're broken down, you don't know what the hell you're saying. Yeah. And, and yet the guidance we had was, you know, you will take torture uh, up to the point where you are going to be like physically harmed. Not harmed, not, that's the wrong term. Uh,
1: Incapacitated?
0: Thank you.
2: Like, well, they're, well, they're going to start to literally like pull your arms out of their sockets or just break your bones
0: or death. I mean, look at ultimately what happened to John McCain.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and they just, you know, he was injured on, on landing, but then they brutalized him even further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of cases where, where guys were just given really poor treatment. I had guys that in December of 72, the B-52 guys that were shot down, and then a few of us were picked out of a room uh, and moved to, I don't remember if it was the zoo or the plantation, and basically brought us in there to kind of care for these B-52 guys that were injured. Why they picked me and two other guys, I have no idea. It was a Navy lieutenant commander, me and another lieutenant. And we went in there, and, and the, the shape that these guys were in was just a mess. And, I mean, they had guys with two broken legs that were bandaged up. They had guys with literally uh, open sores in the base of their back. Guys with broken legs with cast on with pus flying out. And, and they hadn't been treated. Yeah. And as it turned out, you know, two of those guys died when they got home because they were just you know, riddled with uh, sores and, and infections. And the other guys that were not treated at all, that had these big sores in their back, literally you could turn them over and you could see into their spine. And they were bed sores because they'd been laying it down for weeks on a cement slab and nobody they weren't smart enough to even think about rolling themselves I over i
1: mean it was just yeah. it was deplorable so so back kind of back to what you were talking about when you, um the interrogations so what did it seem like they were more after information was it more pro- trying to get you to do propaganda or was it just because i
2: think by by 72 it was more propaganda uh you know, they always wanted an update on military intelligence you know and 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 they could they could probably get that it was more just I think, asking the questions, and maybe somebody will just verify what we already know. I mean, by that time, there really wasn't, I don't think, new news. The only thing new news would be targeting. That's the only thing that would be new by that time. Because we were starting to bomb pretty aggressively in North Vietnam, and I think all they were curious about curious about, was, are they going to bomb Hanoi? Um, but but most of it was if, if, if you had some susceptibility, if they sensed that either by word or action that you were going to, be willing to make an anti-war statement, they would love you. So I think that that was more to, their, to and, their liking at the time.
0: And that was the flavor then, right, is to get you to try to make a statement. Because, I mean, they, the North Vietnamese attempted to do stuff yeah. and it backfired. Like Commander Stratton was one of the famous ones who bowed. They took him out in public and it backfired oh, yeah. because he showed up and bowed to the plant. and bowed. I mean, everybody, to thought and he,
2: everybody thought he was gone mentally, yeah. you know, but he, he was making a point. Yeah. Uh, Jeremiah Denton, I think, uh, blinked torture torture. with his eyes. Uh, Paul Galanti, who was on the cover of, forget it was Look or Life magazine, back when we had magazines. Uh, He's sitting there and, uh, you know, kind of, I don't remember that picture, but but Life or Look uh, airbrushed him out because he was he held his hands, he was basically was no. given the finger. The middle fingers. You know, and they they blocked it, they don't want anybody to see it, but but they were all sending messages at some risk to themselves to basically say, you know, this picture looks good, but they're beating the crap out of us. Uh, and it and it turned out that, you know, it caused enough fervor back in the States eventually that by nineteen seventy this POW MIA campaign, the flag and the bracelets took hold and it really caused a lot of groundswell, you know, in terms of support. So when I was shot down, we, the news that we could give to the old guys was you had not you have not been forgotten. You, you might remember the war and the anti-war and all that venom, but all that still exists. But guess what? Americans have not forgotten you guys. So it was good. It was good. Good news to pass on.
0: So up at this point you had actually had a few Americans who willingly made anti-war statements. Yes. They were POWs. Yeah. So what does that do to the morale of those that have been holding on? Staunch resistors now since 65, 68, and now all of a sudden you have your own comrades.
2: Well, we knew who they were, so they were pointed out to us as people to avoid. Uh, fortunately, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, kept them isolated because they knew we, we'd probably kill them. Uh, and... So, they, you know, that's, it was a small group, you know, six or eight guys, you know, that were known to have either made anti-war statements or collaborated or just, you know, misbehaved uh, enough that they were pliable. And that's what the Vietnamese cared about. They just wanted guys that they could manipulate. Uh, and if you get them to make an anti-war statement to say, oh, the Americans are wrong, they felt that that was important. They felt that if an American POW can tell the American public that, you know, we're against this war, that that would be that would, that would help the North Vietnamese cause. So that's, that's where they focused a lot of their attention.
1: So in the, uh, in the middle of all of this, right. Um, were you guys? what did you guys do to try and help keep each other's spirits up when you're together? Like, I mean, obviously very difficult to do in this sort of situation, but was and, there anything you guys were able to do?
2: Yeah, there's some things we did. I mean, they did give us decks of cards, you know, so we could play some cards. Uh, we would make up stuff to do, um, well, we had a room that was big enough, like the rooms in Camp Unity. I was in room five. It was, if you ever see a movie called uh, Papillon, P-A-P-P-I-L-O-N. It was I Steve, have not seen it, but now Steve I Steve McQueen. It's, it's an older yep. movie. But some of the camp rooms that they have there with the, the cement pedestals and all, very, very similar to uh, the rooms in the hill. Mm-hmm. And so some of it were structured where you, just, you could just walk a lot, exercise, just making laps. Um since I was a junior guy, everybody outranked me. So, but I had the luxury of having 1.25, 30 Air Force, Navy, and Marine senior officers that were mentors to talk about family life and military careers and flying careers and, and everything. Uh, so that was really developmental. So one person asked me, can you describe your POW experience in one word? And I use that, developmental, because in many cases, that's what it was. Uh, so you played cards. A lot of it, though, was that the things that helped us the most was resistance. So uh, we talked to some of the other rooms, guys that had been there for many years. And we said, look, we're going to have a church service. We want to do a church service in our room. And they said, well, the Vietnamese don't like that. We said, it's okay. We're going to do it anyway. Because we were, we were the new guys, and we were still a little feisty. Yeah. And I think in some cases we were trying to prove our, our worth to the old guys. Uh, so we had a church service. Some guys were really good, with they, they knew hymns and everything else, you know. And it was, it was crude, it was simple, but it was important. Uh, and we did it. We start started uh, we singing the National Anthem or God Bless America, the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, we didn't get very far. Guards would come in, you know, yell and scream at us, blah, 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 blah. You can't do that, you know. And, and then we'd stop. And then next Sunday we'd do it again. And we get a little bit further sometimes this time, and then they come in, they get upset, they says, "Ah, uh, no food for you guys." Good for us. And then we do it next Sunday, we do it again, but then sometimes we get a little bit louder, you know, because we were getting really feisty, you know. And then they come in, they uh, no food, and they take a couple guys out and beat the crap out of them. Uh, another thumbs up. Uh, then we do it again. Then they came in with guns and rifles, and we figured, well, I think we made our point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so,
1: so <laughs> and that so that's things. the stopping point.
2: <laughs> but, you know, you had little else to do to keep morale up. You know, and, and some of it was just talking to each other, people having your back, and the other one was finding out the ways to resist. Because our feeling was, the more guards we could get watching us, were less people to be shooting at us. So that was our rationale.
0: Were they still trying to pin you as war criminals?
2: Oh, yeah, every day.
0: Yeah. So that way they could justify torture and everything, right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. 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 We were, we were Yankee air pirates. We were war criminals. We were killers of infants and children. We were bombers of hospitals and schools. You know, we were, we were really, really ugly pieces of humanity to them. Uh, which is why they felt their rationale was they could just beat the crap out of us whenever they wanted, because, uh, we were ugly in our campaign, uh, they have truly believed some of what they heard because somebody told them that. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a difficult time. Then they, didn't have, then they didn't follow the Geneva Convention because there was no war, so they didn't think they had to follow that. And, and there was nobody really keeping an eye on it. Nobody cared. So POWs were visible, but not enough that anybody would go in and, and change their behavior.
0: So for you, if you don't mind me asking— were they just beatings, or did they do torture? Was well, the famous with the rope trick? and. By the time slogans? I was there in
2: 72, a lot of that had changed. Yeah. Uh, some of it was because, I forget the exact year, 69, 70, 71, when Ho Chi Minh died, things got a little bit better in general. Yeah. Um, by 1972, uh, there were so many POWs coming in, and some of them were pretty senior guys senior being senior majors and lieutenant colonels, you know, squadron commanders and wing commanders, uh, that, that they could pluck what they needed. They felt from those guys. Uh, and the rest of us kind of, they left us alone. It was just the usual front end stuff. Uh, and they had enough new beef, yeah. <laughs> new raw meat coming in that they could just let the old guys go and, and move on. Uh, but the, the older guys, um, they really had it really bad. Some of them for years, years and years. And, uh, how they withstood that, I really don't know, and I bet you a lot of them don't know how they made it from day to day so and you can't you can't train for that no uh some guys were just absolutely remarkable to the- to the extent that um their behavior I don't think could really ever be duplicated. some guys like Bud Day and a few others Medal of honor recipients to Jim yeah. stockdale and a few others uh there's a mental toughness to some of these guys, not, not just the physical side, but the mental toughness, not only to withstand it all, but then to be able to lead on top of it all, be able to be rational and lead, provide guidance to these hundreds of guys in the camps. Uh, absolutely remarkable.
0: I mean, You can tie it right in with the human will to survive, faith. I mean, all these are major factors.
2: Yeah, and they're all, they're all soft, squishy stuff. You know, you can say, "Well, yeah. I went to survival school," you know, I, I, I too weak, you know. But but all these soft things about, you know, your what you're made of. Uh, I I I say that in in my situation in a POW camp, all your strengths surface and all your weaknesses surface, and and you learn a lot about yourself. You learn what you're really good at, but at the same time, you really know what you're bad at. Right. Uh, and if you could fix those couple of things that you think you're really bad at, you know, then, then you have a chance because you leverage your strengths and now you start to work on your weaknesses. Uh, but they really come to the fore. Uh, like I was, you know, I was pretty pathetic in solitary and I got really braver when I had a roommate. I got really brave when I had 30 roommates because um, I knew I had a lot of guys had my back that if something was going to happen to me, they would, they would fight for me just like we would do for them. So.
0: Earlier today, a younger individual approached you and uh, started asking you a few questions, and I think it was a moment for him maybe to, uh, to open up about some failures he had in his life, and uh, he was seeking some guidance from you on these very low points where you did experience failure. How did you yeah. recover? He wanted to know what's the answer, and Damn. obviously, it's not a cookie-cutter answer for yeah. everybody. And I tell you, but,
2: you know, we all, we all failed we all failed in some at one point or another, we all succumbed. And uh, the, the challenge is how do you fight failure? How do you fight guilt? How do you get back on that horse? Because uh, it's just like the analogy I used this afternoon. Uh, when you're in combat and, and you're out there and you are killing people, when you're watching people around you get shot and die, uh, Tomorrow, you got to go out and do it again. They don't give you time off. You got to go out and do it again. In a POW camp, it's the same thing. You know, you could suck today, but you got to figure out some way to suck less tomorrow because you got to do it all over again. Uh, And and you might not feel that good because you're still recovering. Uh, That's when you really learn about yourself a lot. Is is you know how do you how do you rebuild yourself uh, when you look at yourself as a failure? And that's why I try to tell this guy is you got to focus on your strengths and then understand and kind of recover from your failures, not to let them debilitate you. That's the problem.
0: Or define you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For you, it, it you are a very happy individual. You're always smiling. You have a joke. And I love it. Cause I'm it, happy it, to be alive. Absolutely. Perspective, right? It's all about perspective. But yeah. for you, it, it didn't define you. And you can see for that individual, whatever yeah. his failure was in life, it yeah. has defined him. For however long it's been.
2: And for some folks, you know, like I said, you know, I, I wanted to be a really great wizard, you know, and I only had 90 days doing it and I didn't, I wasn't done. And, and then I got shot down, you know, and you sit back and say, Jesus, you know, they spent all this money training me and losing, you know, and it, it was hard, you know, and I, I know there were some guys there that were in the middle of their career and it was like, you know, I didn't expect to find myself in this situation. You know, I expected to find myself flying lots of combat missions and getting medals and, you know, getting a good assignment and doing blah, 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 and getting a squadron or a wing or whatever. And in some cases, you know, they looked at this POW thing was just a major interruption in yeah.
0: their career plans. But to be fair, you, you were still technically a great WIZO because it's not like you were a bad one because it wasn't your fault, right? It's, well, you were doing yeah. the job and it got altered. You had a yeah, new mission. But,
2: but, you know, in some cases, we looked and said, you know what? I should have seen that sand. Would have, yeah. could have, should have. Yeah. You know, That's it was, bad, it was you know. my job. I was there. It was one of our jobs to keep our eyes open. So, you know, you could rationalize these things, but you're, you're, you're right. But at the same time, you know, guilt is a nasty thing. It lingers yeah. a long
1: time. Yeah. So while you're can in. Can we the- get
2: more positive? Is there any way we could get some positive stuff going here?
1: Yes. Okay. okay. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Poor audience. That's probably uh, ready for a potty break. Okay. Go ahead. Do you sorry. need one?
1: No, no, no. You no, no. need to, yeah. I want yeah. to be
2: sure we're on, on target for you guys. So. No, we are.
1: All good. All good. Um, you mentioned uh, communication with, yeah. you, with your peers. How much uh, experience did you have with Tap Code?
2: Uh, not a lot with Tap Code. Uh, I really sucked at the Tap Code, uh, I just couldn't, couldn't do it fast enough. Uh, but I didn't need it that much, which was good. Uh, we we had hand signals, which I was much better at. But but that assumed you had line of sight to somebody else. Uh, and it was like this. It was like the um, the blind, not the blind, but the hand, the hand signals. Sign language. Sign language. Yeah, obviously not being blind. Yeah, <laughs> sign language. It was a truncated version of that, and that helped. Then we had mail drops and other things like that. So you know the, the tap code was really important when you were in isolation and you were you know, door to door with somebody. And, and we had some situations. I, I wish I could remember their names, but, but two guys that did the tap code with each other for a couple of years and never knew what each other looked like. They were best friends. Didn't know what either of them looked like, but it was calm in general is a lifeblood, uh, getting news and calm and, and encouragement, uh, guidance, leadership, structure, all comes through calm of some kind. And 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 I, I used to enjoy, I mean, I, I say I enjoyed it, but I was fascinated with the ways we were able to communicate. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, how do these guys think of this stuff? you Get creative. Yeah, you know, yeah. they had tap code when you couldn't see. They had the hands when you could see but couldn't hear. They had mail drops in sticks. They had I, I, And I got to give it to the Navy. The Navy, as crazy as they are, uh, they are really creative. I remember one time uh, we heard this loud noise outside uh, and somebody said, you know what? That's, that's a sonic boom. I think they're sending drones over us to take pictures. As it turned out, I think it was an SR 71 that they literally flew by a couple of days in a row and caused a sonic boom. And the point there was to make a point that to us on the ground that, Hey, we know, we, we know where room. you are, yeah. you know, are I didn't realize that because I was an idiot. <laughs> but the older guy, the older guys figured this stuff out. So the Navy guys, we were out and they they gave us a clothing line where every you know once every couple of weeks you were allowed to wash your clothes. So these Navy guys said, you know what, we're gonna we think if there's a drone, they're gonna take pictures, we're gonna send a message up. So they they got the 30 guys in my room, and we each had a mission, which was on the clothes line. We had to hang our clothes in such a way that was like Morse code, so one long pant leg, one short pant leg, one sh- you know you know what I'm getting at, yeah. and they created a message. As long as one of us Air Force guys didn't screw it up, um, but but it was like uh, you you figure out a way to do it, and these guys did it. They sorted through it, and you would do calm to the up uh, to the extent that if you got beat up for it, it was still worth it. Mm-hmm. So. So I was in a, uh, when I was in the zoo in solitary, I had been alone incommunicado for about a month and all of a sudden the trap door on my door opens and somebody throws a stick in there. (laughs) I thought, You know, what the hell's going on? I'm in solitary. I got geckos. I got rats. Now they're throwing stuff at me and I go pick it up and here it's, it's a hollowed out stick. Yeah. I told you I'm a schmuck. So. You know, I, I, it took me a while to figure out that it was hollow and there was something inside. You know, imagine if I just got it and chucked it out the window. But I opened it up, and here's a little note inside. I mean, a really little note, maybe twice the size of a postage stamp. And in there is some script. Basically, says, you know, you're not alone. Uh, keep the faith, GBU. And I'm thinking, who the hell's GBU? I don't know who that guy is. But but somebody took a risk to to let me know that there were other Americans there. Matter of fact, I think later that day, somebody's walking by and they start whistling the Air Force song or something American, just to let other people know there's Americans in the camp. Communications, it was vital. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, I found out later, GBU was not this guy's initial, it was God bless you. And to this day, all of our emails, when you send an email to another POW, it always ends GBU. So it's it just became another another truncated piece of symbol. So if somebody picked up this note, it was all written in code. So the was T and that was TT and, and and was N, you know, and then GBU was that. So even if they picked it up, they probably couldn't make heads or tails out of it. So it was like, you guys aren't old enough. It was like mash, uh, the dirty dozen, uh, uh, what was the other period? Oh, uh, Stalic Seventeen. It was all those things mixed together. Hogan's Heroes. It yeah. was sometimes it was more like Hogan's Heroes than anything else. But sometimes it, you, you had to keep the humor side of it going because it drive you nuts.
0: I mean, to think they started
1: shorthand text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. was us. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, that was probably us. Yeah, that's
0: crazy.
1: So. I read something online, and I thought it was kind of interesting. And I wanted to know if you had any experience. It must with be true. Got to be true. 100%. 100%. Online, let's just talk about facts. So, um, I read that uh, in some camps they would uh, create little fake newspaper articles on on sheets of toilet paper. Like, did you ever see that, or did you ever hear that, or was that a thing, or am I just reading some? I know. I know. We
2: use toilet paper for messages because the the toilet paper was so crude. It was so unrefined. Uh, it, it, the best example I have is, you know, the, the industrial cleaners in, in your office building and things like that, that have those brownish, coarse paper towels.
0: The stuff that doesn't soak up water, just moves it around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, well, think of
2: that as toilet paper, but, but so poorly refined that the pieces of wood pulp were still in it. Uh, so if you could steal a pencil, which, which we had to do, you had to, you know, you, wherever you go, you'd, have, you'd look for any kind of contraband that you could, you could use. Um, you know, people, would, we would use that to pass notes. Uh, but I don't remember cause it was such a precious commodity. I don't remember that people would use it for books or stories or anything. Everything was pretty much verbal cause you couldn't afford mm-hmm. anybody finding it.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense considering... It like, doesn't mean but, it didn't happen. Yeah, like, just yeah like you said, it, it was a precious commodity, and you probably wouldn't want to waste it like that then.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, after you read it, you used it for toilet paper. I, mean, so.
0: <laughs> I have a friend who wanted to know, besides repatriation, yeah. what was the greatest day in captivity, and what was the worst day in captivity? Because uh, we're just assuming repatriation was probably the day. Yeah, every,
2: <laughs> every day was bad. Repatriation was good once we took it seriously. So I think somebody asked the question today and, and we were so suspicious of propaganda that even when they asked us to put on these civilian clothes and took us to the airport and, and, you know, all the indications were positive. Uh, we were still suspect that this was some propaganda campaign or they're going to put us in a plane and then shoot us down. I mean, we were, we were nuts about that. Um, so repatriation was a good day, although until we were out over the ocean, we were still suspects. So we didn't have a lot of time to thrive on it. Even when they read to us sometime in the latter part of January of 73, when they read to us some statement about the Paris peace agreements were signed, we didn't even believe that. That's crazy. Well, because we figured it was yes. just another propaganda story. Yeah. And we figured, well, you know, it sounds like the bombing stopped. Um, it's really interesting uh, the bombings of December of 72, which was the B-52 bombings of Hanoi, were, were pretty good for us. They were, they were, even though they came really close to the camp, I mean, really close. Close enough that the ceilings would kind of cave in, the building. Um, we, we, realized, we thought that the only way they were going to end the war was going to literally bomb them in submission. That's just kind of what we thought. It had been, it'd been already too long. Um, so that was, that was invigorating, the fact that we were taking the game to the enemy. Uh, the Viet- North Vietnamese did not like that because we were in there cheering and yelling and screaming, and, and they, they really came in there with guns. They did not like us encouraging yeah. this behavior. Although to us it was like, we're going to go home pretty soon. All we got to do is survive a B-52 bombs. Um. But other than that, you know, most days were either bad or boring. Some flavor of both of those. And sometimes it was both. But, you know, there weren't many good days. There were just days when nothing happened that you could be pleasantly bored. And
0: and we've talked throughout the day quite a bit. And even down to the idea of eating, day-to-day life of your food. I didn't recognize anything I ever ate. I didn't, I didn't know what I was eating until
2: you'd ask somebody else, and they said, oh, yeah, this is a pumpkin, or that's cabbage, or that's kohlrabi, or that's, we don't know what that is, mystery meat, we called it. Um, and then sometimes they would give you, <laughs> we had 30 guys in our room, and they'd give you a little bit of food, and then they'd give you sometimes one can of meat. So one can, the, look, uh, the size of a can of tuna fish. Uh, and the label was in Russian. We didn't know if it was meat, dog food. We didn't know what it was. But that can had to go 30 ways. So everybody got a bite. Yeah. And same thing when somebody got a package from home and you got 30 vitamins, every guy got one vitamin. So it was, it was community living. And that's just the way we did it. And, and the Vietnamese didn't like it. North Vietnamese didn't like it because they were trying to break us down. So they would give you a letter from home but not me because my family hated me. (laughs) Okay. So, or they'd give you a package and nobody else because they wanted to make us hate him. Uh, And what what they didn't realize was that was not going to break us. No. And, and we would take whatever we got and it would just get shared among everybody. And uh, do I have time for a sidebar story?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have nowhere to be right now. (laughs)
2: I got a package that I, I guess it was for me. I have no way of knowing. It just was already opened. You know, I don't know what was taken or not. It just showed up. They said, "ga." They didn't even say Galati. just, "ga." G-A. Uh, here's your package. and So I'm opening it, and it had some vitamins in there. Probably stuff the government told our families would probably make it through. So vitamins and, uh, like, uh, I think pudding, you can mix with water, you know, or tea that we had. Odds and ends like that. And then I got this ugly set of long johns. First of all, I never wore long johns. Second, these things were tie-dyed. It's like somebody put them in the wash with other colors and totally ruined them. Okay, so these white long johns now were white, red, blue, you name it. It was, it was like they were defective. And I'm looking at this, obviously this isn't from my family, because I, first of all, I don't wear long johns, and second, my family would never send me something like this. So I didn't wear them, but somebody else got sick one time, they had the flu, whatever, and I, you know, we just gave it to them. That's, that's what we do. So fast forward now, six months and I'm home, and we're talking about stuff, and I said, yeah, I got this package this time. I said, I know it wasn't you guys, I talked about these long johns, and they go, oh yeah, that was us. I said, what happened? She goes, well, Uncle Vince, who was one of my uncles, he died. And when we were cleaning up his stuff, we found his log odds, And we thought we'd clean them up and send them to you. But they got tie-dyed. And we figured, well, he's dead. We'll just send it to Ralph. Rather than throw him out. It was my family. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've still forgiven him for that. But but it's just, it just amazing sometimes the small things that'll kind of be humorous enough to maybe... Last a day or so.
0: But also someone else got to enjoy them then, right?
2: Time off the tour, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. So you even just said someone got the flu or got sick, right? And uh, I asked you a question about parasites. Yeah. And uh, there's plenty of stories out there of people drinking kerosene or even doing the, uh, the, the coal. You know, if you uh, have diarrhea or you're constipated, you can eat either like black coal or the really fine white ash. Mm. So what did you do? Because I know you said you had plenty of parasites. Yeah.
2: Some of us, some of us got diarrhea. A lot of us, like myself, got dysentery, which is really bad diarrhea, and 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 there's nothing to take for it, and they wouldn't give you anything. I mean, sometimes they would give you a pill, but you had no idea what they were giving you. You know, for all I know, it could have been a piece of chalk. Uh, but what choice do you have? You know, yeah. you, they, you, you took something, um, but. But that was the challenge was you get some of these bad GI issues. And and aside from everything else, you know, you just, first of all, you ran out of toilet paper. And second, you know, you you couldn't keep your food down. You couldn't keep your weight up. So to me, it was, you know, I was losing weight, you know, by the day.
0: And it wasn't getting any better. So what was your weight in the F4 versus you being repatriated?
2: I was probably 148 the F4, when I got repatriated, I had been gaining weight for a couple of months, I think just, but I was, I was up to a, a healthy 118. So I, my, I was probably down to 110 and, and the other guys in my room, you know, would call me skinny rinny because I was really, they said, you know, you're going to give us all a bad name. You'll look like somebody <laughs> from Auschwitz. <laughs> I said, you know, you got to beef up so you look better when you get repatriated, um, But that's, everybody had different, you know what's interesting? People got boils. You know, I grew up in Philly, so I was used to heat and humidity and everything else. Well, some of these guys didn't, and they would develop, especially in the summer with the hot, hot temperature and the humidity, guys would end up with these enormous boils on their skin. And I'm sitting here saying, who the hell gets boils? You know, I mean, from South Philly, I don't remember seeing anybody with a boil. And, and you get them and you can't treat them, you know, and they're just big festering sores. And you got that, then you had dysentery and, you know, the other odds and ends. Then you had the rats at night. I mean, come on. Where the hell was I? What planet was I on? And uh, it, was, it was not my best tour. Not my best assignment.
0: <laughs> I think everyone would agree. <laughs> yeah.
2: It ended up being my longest assignment up to that point. But,
0: <laughs> but You got to think even as a POW in this harsh, god-awful environment. You still had to be creative, you still had to be or show ingenuity
2: you still had to have a sense of humor humor i mean I tell you that was that was a godsend it's tough when you have a when you have uh, you know a room full of people. it was okay, but just think of any group of thirty people that you're with, and you'll find tremendous deviations in personality, you know some of them were very serious, some of them were very quiet, you know most of us i think were relatively stable and that, you know, we could appreciate where we were, but at the same time we, we had to have some ways to vent, you know, and telling stories or whatever it happened to be.
0: Uh, but did you ever have negative Nancy's in the room? You know, that poison that they just hated everything and they just brought the morale down.
2: You know, not not too much, you know, they either kept quiet, you know, or, or they, or they were kept quiet, but most, I was surprised. Most of them, You know, sometimes the issues were more of interpretation of the code of conduct, Uh, but and sometimes we would have some arguments about resistance strategies. You know, whether you should shut up or whether you should talk or try to lie and things like that. But, but, but they weren't real, real bad. We figured the last thing we needed to do was fight amongst ourselves. We had enough issues to deal with, so.
0: Well, I just think it's funny because Guy and I will go fishing and we won't catch a fish for like two hours and we already start to like get at each other. That's you know? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> two hours, so I can only imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, you had to live with these guys day after day. And, and uh, I, I, find, I find as I look back at it, it was pretty remarkable how well everybody tolerated each other. Yeah. You know, even though you might not agree with everybody on what they did and you came from very different backgrounds, different branches of the service, different ranks... Um, it, it ended up being pretty interesting how you know, the, the common ground took over as opposed to your idiosyncrasies. Yeah.
0: I have like two more talking points about captivity and then mm-hmm. we can go into you coming home and uh, we'll see if you want to elaborate on this or not. <laughs> and I got one or two more as well. Do you? Okay, so uh, we started talking about this earlier and uh, I was like, I want to save it for tonight. But we already uh, popped a cap on this one you had an American celebrity come over to North Vietnam and pay you a visit. I did. Yeah. And She didn't uh, visit me. Probably a good thing.
2: Jane Fonda came over sometime, I think, in the summer of 72. Uh, and, and she got a lot of heat back home. Um, she got a lot of heat when we found out about it. As it turned out, she came, I don't even know how old she was at the time, but she wasn't very old. She, she was still... A, uh, somewhat of a famous movie star, but she was still pretty young. And she decided she was going to go over to North Vietnam and, and make an issue for the American public about, you know, the great and glorious and humane people of North Vietnam, you know, and how they're battling for survival against this big American juggernaut enemy that keeps bombing uh, hospitals and schools, and, and about the humane and lenient treatment of the POWs, which was... Everything everything wrong, which was she was the best propaganda organ they
0: ever had. The by ever the had. way, we had POWs blinking torture on yeah. TV. <laughs> but uh
1: yeah.
2: So she comes and they took pictures of her everywhere. On tanks, next to hospitals that 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 looked like they were destroyed. I mean, making statements. They even had a group of POWs that were coerced into going to visit with her to Hopefully, you know, make a statement or something like that. But
0: I mean, it's the famous picture of her sitting on the AAA. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the AA gun.
1: Yeah. She was just
2: very naive, very stupid, easily duped, and she did exactly what the North Vietnamese wanted. She basically had some they basically had some celebrity come over here and say, in a sense, American people, guess what? You've been duped. Look how great and glorious everything is. And I talked to POWs, and they're fine. They're being well fed and well taken care of, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, uh, anyway, she is uh, not, pers- she's persona non grata among the POW community.
0: But then there was still one more individual that was behind her that I feel is someone who's not talked about nearly as much. Yeah,
2: Ramsey Clark, former attorney general of the United States. He went over also. Uh, excuse me, I don't know what motivates these people to do this. Um, my personal feeling is, you show up in an enemy camp and, and support the enemy, that's Ralph's definition of treason. Uh, you, could, you could do anything you want in this country. You could say whatever you want. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. I might not agree with it, but you have the right to say anything you want. But you go, and, you know, you go over there and, and side with them, despite whatever else your government says, or sometimes despite what you actually see. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I know that my mission briefings every day did not tell me to bomb a hotel, a hospital, or a school. Matter of fact, we were given more intel briefings in the morning that said, avoid this area, suspected POW camp. Avoid this area, this is a hotel. Avoid this. We had so many no-bomb lines, we were wondering where the hell we were allowed to bomb. <laughs> the interesting thing is, is that they the Vietnamese knew that we couldn't bomb those areas, so guess what they did? They put their heaviest artillery there. in those areas because mm-hmm. we couldn't do it. Now, did we ever miss... Did we, I, I'm sure that we end up hitting those inadvertently, but they were never targeted. We had enough targets. so
0: It's just crazy to know that the flavor did change from I want that in, that tactical interrogation information to you know, let's get more towards that propaganda because that's yeah. the powerful tool that was. was influencing us back here. And you saw a lot of riots and yeah. protest. <clears throat> and then you have her go over there and then boom, what better propaganda can you think of than an American celebrity yep. backing this now?
2: Yeah. Well, thank God we had December of 72 when we bought B-52s. And let me tell you something. You want to end a war quick, B-52s <sighs> guaranteed. Yeah. Okay. I flew in F-4s, no, not an issue. You bring in 10, 15, 20 B-52s, each carrying a hundred bombs night after night after night. Big impact.
0: If I was a betting man, I think that's going to be a hundred year aircraft. I'm just <laughs> saying it's still flying. Oh,
1: well, and proud. Still going. It's still going.
0: I tell you, they make an impact.
1: They really do. So I kind of mentioned earlier with the, uh, did you like, did you have a song stuck in your head? Was there anything else like say that you were, that you were like, just like really looking forward to back home, whether it just be the simplest, like a meal, like a meal back home or like a getting back to a hobby that you had or anything like that. Or like as simple as like, I want a cheeseburger right now.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that one, but a lot of it on the day to day side, it was just a matter of getting out. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was just wanting a taste of freedom again. Uh, You would be surprised that not seeing the American flag, uh, not being able to recite pledge of allegiance, you know, without some kind of reciprocity, um, and just being confined, not having any freedom, that's that's nasty stuff. Uh, so just an appreciation for that was enough. You know, I don't know if you remember, but the, the, some of the first guys getting off the plane at Clark Air Force Base to come down the steps and just kiss the ground. Yeah. Just great to be home. And they weren't even home. No. <laughs> they were at Clark Air Base yeah. in, the, in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the loss of freedom and the taste of freedom are really significant. But to get back to your story, when I – I was the next to the last group released on the 28th of March. So there was one couple of airplanes after me. Um, we got the Clark Air Base, and, and by then they had already been through 400, 450 POWs, so they kind of had their act together in terms of what to expect. Uh, physical stuff, emotional stuff, mental debriefings, you know, intel, you know all the usual stuff, parasites, <laughs> kind of get you cleaned up. Uh, they, they had a really great process where they would fit you for a uniform, know they had all your ribbons already done I mean it was incredible what they were able to do that that they knew these things were important to us Uh, and then they gave you a call to your family and they arranged for that you got to realize this is 1973 so long distance calls were tough anyway this is now across across the continents so I I talked to my wife you know I had so I haven't I haven't been home in 18 months so my daughter's walking and talking I guess so and, and she says, you know, we're talking a bit, when will you be home? And I talked about it, be a few more days, convalescent leave. And, and uh, she says, uh, you know, what would you like your first meal to be? And my wife's British, but my, my whole family is Italian. So I'm, I, I was, I'm saying to myself, I didn't think food was going to be an issue. I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> but being a, being a Brit, I, I thought it was interesting because food was not going to be a problem. My family. So I said, you know what I want? I just want a McDonald's hamburger. I just want something very simple. I want something American. Uh, and, and I don't even know why I said it. That's just the first thing that came to my mind. So she gets interviewed by a local newspaper a little bit later, and it makes it into the newspaper, and it's like, guess what this idiot asked for? He, he, he could have he, <laughs> asked for a life supply, lifetime supply of Chateaubriand steak or flame, anything, and he asked for a McDonald's. So... Uh, we get released. You know, we spend a couple of days at Clark. Then I got to go to Andrews, and we spend some convalescent leave there. And I finally make it home. And there's a knock at the door at my parents' house at night, and it's the manager of the local McDonald's. And he said, "Lieutenant Galati, remember I'm still a lieutenant now." He says, uh, I "Read in the newspaper that you want a McDonald's hamburger. We really appreciate. You know, you're recognizing us, and he gives me a certificate." It's a doctorate in hamburgerology from the <laughs> McDonald's University, signed by Ray Kroc, who was the founder of that. And he gives me his two boxes of coupons, and each one is good for one free hamburger. It's a 1,000 of them. And he said, uh, Lieutenant Galati, I apologize, but short notice. We made some, some printing issues here, but don't worry about it. This is April 6th, 1973. So, uh, you know, we took some pictures. It was nice, you know. So I get in the house and later on that night I take these two boxes I take them up you know and they're, and they're like business cards. and I say, let me see what's on here and it says welcome home lieutenant ralph galati this coupon is good for one free hamburger uh, it was only good at his store which i'm sure he would have liked to have it good anywhere yeah. you know expiration date april 30th it's 24 days deed a thousand burgers <laughs> uh, but it, but he had good intentions, so I spent my convalescent leave giving away a lot of burgers to people who were in the parade. You know, all these schools and veterans groups and things like that, but that to me was a good representation of what it was like being welcomed home as opposed to three million Vietnam vets that were not. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult, it was very uncomfortable to be a Vietnam vet, it was a POW that was treated uh, specially as opposed to the rest. Uh, but the American public wanted some closure and this was one that was very visible, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it is what it is. And even to this day, 50 some years later, it's pretty remarkable. Matter of fact, I was at a veterans event a couple of weeks ago and a woman comes up to me and she goes, you're Ralph Galati. And I said, I know (laughs) not to be spiteful, but I know I said, but how did you know? She goes, well, I recognize you. I was at your Welcome Home Parade in April of 1973. Damn. And that's only happened twice in 50 years. That's crazy. But it's those kind of things that are absolutely remarkable. I mean, just it's like the POW flag lasting 50 years. Yeah. It's just incredible. And uh, these things are important to me because I get to meet folks like you that I would never otherwise meet. But also... You know, you might say something that touches somebody in the audience that was back from that day, or maybe wore a POW bracelet or did something. Uh, and it's important for let people know that that they were that support back there was was really life saving for us.
0: Now, you did say a, a key word earlier that you had some guilt. So, if you don't mind, can I yeah. ask a not stay on a negative topic, but an example is there's a a couple of Medal of Honor recipients who have this guilt because they received the highest accolade possible for sometimes probably the worst day of a lot of people's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. So they live with this almost like survivor's guilt. So for you to see how our regular DOD members returning home were treated versus how you and your fellow POWs mm-hmm. were treated, I mean, what was the hump to get over to see what? that there is good in this? Well,
2: yeah. First of all, if, if for anybody that's listening to this, if you ever get a chance, read, read award citations for Medal of Honor recipients. Do you want to see stories about supermen? Read these. Absolutely incredible. I met one guy named Sammy, Sammy Davis. Uh, I said, if half of what you did is true, it's still a Medal it's of Honor. I mean, they are incredible stories. So um, there are some people that put POWs and stuff at a really high position. I put Medal of Honor recipients and people killed in combat first, and then a big drop before you get to any of us guys. Um, the uh, The guilt thing though, uh, you know, it kind of wears off over time. In, in, the, in the beginning coming home, it was more one of just being really uncomfortable. Being the recipient of awards and accolades and recognition and speaking, I mean, I understood why it was important. I still understand today why it's important because if people are still that curious, you know, I think maybe it's important to talk to them, to say something that uh, might help them through it. But my job for the last 15, 20, or 30, or 50 years has been to represent Vietnam veterans. I mean, I'm speaking as a POW, former POW, but I think a lot of it is to be sure that they understand I am a Vietnam-era veteran. Okay, that's, that's who and what we are. And I also let them know that uh, when uh, post-9-11 vets, Iraq-Afghanistan vets, come back to airports after deployments, guess who's there to greet them? Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you have a ceremony and you're speaking at a ceremony, who's always in the back? Vietnam veterans. And when you have a parade, a motorcycle parade, who's driving around with the POWMA flag? Vietnam veterans. So I think it's important for the public, even though they disdained them for many years, to let them know these guys are still around and they're still making an impact, and they're making sure nobody gets ignored uh, like they did. And so
0: they are a very strong voice that we still need. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is. And you mentioned earlier, um, speaking more to that, like you know, the, the you guys coming home when you would apply for jobs, you wouldn't, you didn't even want to put the fact that you or some people didn't want to put on their application that they were a veteran at the time.
2: If you put down a veteran, if you're a Vietnam veteran, I mm-hmm. think it was toxic. Yeah. Um, the environment in general in the late 60s, early 70s, even maybe through the 70s, was pretty damn toxic for veterans, Vietnam veterans especially, because you were painted with the same broad brush as anti-war, anti-government, anti-military, anti-DOD, you name it. it was Vietnam veterans were all part of that. And you know we were still baby killers. You know they remember they remember the Sante not Sante story, Emil massacre and things yeah. like that. They remember all those things because that's what got the press. And uh, it probably wasn't until midway through the Reagan era, I bet you, that a little more uh, citizenry was more appreciative of the soldier. And probably wasn't until the, the first Gulf War, 1991, after that, they were able to distinguish between the soldier and the conflict and things like that. So it took a, it took a long time for that to happen.
1: So, uh, um, leading up to your release, you said... Am I going
2: to get arrested when I'm done here? Am I going <laughs> to... <laughs> I don't think no, so. Okay.
1: I think I, I think you're clear. Um, but, lead, okay, so leading up to your release, you were saying how, like, you were told things and you guys weren't believing them. You right. guys weren't believing were, Leading, after you're being told these things, right, like the, the treaty's been signed, um, you know, you're potentially being released was... Treatment did treatment get any better leading up to yeah, that or Yeah,
2: we, we noticed the change we got a little better food. We we had more outside time. Uh I don't want to say we were left alone, but in many cases they just left us alone. You know, they opened the doors and let us wander around a little bit. So we noticed the change. Um we were always suspicious that well they're they're doing this because they're gonna bring press in to take to get interviews or have us say something stupid. So um then we, knew, we noticed that the bombing stopped. You know, so we had some indications. Uh, we, they kept us all isolated, so it's not like we had guys moving around enough to kind of knew some news. Uh, even the guys that got released early, the first ones that got released, I think it was February 12th or something like that, the first group that got released, you know, we didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. And in a lot, a lot of cases, you know, you didn't know about it until the day you were putting on civilian clothes, you know, and saying, get on the bus. You know, and the last time people were told to get in the bus, it was a march down in Hanoi, which was really bad. So, um, you know, we it was it was a quieter time, but it it was uncertain. We didn't know what was going on.
0: You were not a part of that, were you, the
1: Hanoi march? No,
2: it was way before me. It was yeah. 66 or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought they did one later, too. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point then was it in your head where you like, okay, this is real, I'm going home? At what when I got point on, the you, on the airplane. On the airplane?
2: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we got out over the ocean that <clears throat> that we weren't shot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That we figured it was real. Mm-hmm. So if if you if you ever see that, that one of the more famous pictures of, of everybody cheering in the airport that, you know, that's that's in the Nixon that's in, in some famous library that's my flight, and that's not when we took off. That's when we got over the water. So that was 15 minutes after takeoff.
0: That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Can wow. you describe? what healthy decompression was for you and maybe give some advice for those that might not know what it looks like now.
2: Uh, Getting out of the military, you mean readjustment, transition? Not even,
0: just your repatriation. You go home, you're on convalescent leave, you have a family. You were just told to do what you had to do every day for the last 14 months. You were starved, you were tortured, you're interrogated, and now you have the world. You have freedom again. If something we talked about earlier that everyone seems to take for granted nowadays and you don't appreciate it till it's gone, it's gone. You come yeah. home. You now have freedom. Almost how, suddenly, do. How do you decompress? What did you, you know, do was, that you're... I mean, you're a normal guy. I was a, I've been with you all day. You're a great, smiling, happy yeah, individual. So what was that process to get I, you I, to this point?
2: I was a lieutenant still. I was still pretty naive, I think. Um, I I did not have... The battle scars that a lot of these guys did. Um, some of these guys came back, you know, physically and mentally in bad shape. Some of these guys came back and their families had basically gone. moved on. gone. You know, I mean, the grade school kids were now high school kids. The middle school kids were college kids. They were married. They, I mean, it just, it was a lot of stuff going on. And some of them came back home and the families weren't there. You know, they were, I mean, so... Had a, people had a lot of issues. not a, forget the health stuff. Uh, so my time year there, year and a half I was going from my family. I, I, I think it was a combination of having strong faith, but also having a f- strong family structure that helped me back. And uh, th- the more that the more that you had several attributes, so I, I always felt that my military structure helped me. My military training, survival school, helped me. Uh, The guys in the camps helped me. My family was strong. That helped me. Faith in God. All those things. And you mix and match those a little bit, and you end up with a recipe that says you're probably okay. Now, I was okay, but then again, when I see veterans today and they come back from deployments and I ask them how they are, they say, I'm okay. And I tell them, you're not okay. You might feel okay, but you're not the same guy that is here today that was, you know, because you shot and you killed. I mean, you did a lot of nasty stuff. I don't want to hear that you're okay. You're you definitely different. And I think that's what happened to me. And I told a lot of folks, I said, don't do what I did. I was, I felt like I was okay and I wasn't okay. So I said, don't wait 25 years to get a good PTSD evaluation or whatever it happens to be. Because we're all carrying some baggage. We just... A lot of cases you just choose to refuse to accept it. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you know, let life do that. Now I was a little bit different than a lot of the guys. And I only stayed in for eight years. A lot of these guys finished their careers. And, and I think having that camaraderie around them, that comfort zone of the military life probably helped them a lot. Uh, plus some of them, you know, they got back. One thing that they did for POWs was they, everybody got promoted on time you didn't get promoted early but you know if if uh, if you were going to be promoted to captain at the four year point automatically you got promoted while you were there
0: so oh by the way they still had OPRs due
2: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah we had a we had to have uh, evaluations written on us based on our performance as how POWs. how you
0: perform <laughs> oh, <my laughs> while
2: goodness. being
1: a POW who signs that uh, uh, your senior ranking officer in, in, in the camp
2: in the camp so whoever was there most for the most for you yeah signed it uh, and I, I can't remember if we had to have more than one. Uh, it's not a
0: joke, man, like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
2: And, and there were some guys that, you know, if you had a little bit of a headbutt with your SRO and he decided to not say the most pleasant things about you, some guys just did not get promoted. And by the that.
0: way, those individuals we talked about earlier who made statements against America, oh, are they getting promoted? No, they push court-martial, right? They're pushing UCMJ. Like, how you act, you're responsible for it by the way. This isn't a free for all.
2: Yeah, you it's uh like I said today, you you have to be responsible for your actions. Hundred percent. Whatever they are. Well, it's a tough world out there.
1: It I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind when you said OPRs yeah. and until, and and, but now that you've brought it up. No, dude, think about getting your EPR back and be like, you know, uh, across the board,
0: uh, I would say you're probably a promote man. Uh, let's go ahead and discuss how you acted for the last uh, 12 months in captivity.
2: And yeah, nobody said so, this POW thing was a cakewalk. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Dude, you got to still. You got to get evaluated. Pay the man, dude. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. He's still going to get his. You know, you were just a promote. You know, we thought I'd get you that. Uh, I, w- I was
2: fascinated when I read mine. And uh, my SRO wrote it up, you know, and it was, it was really good. I was surprised. And, uh, and I looked at the back page of it where there was a second endorsement, which sometimes you have one and you don't. You sometimes it's the wing commander or base commander or something like that. Mine was Jim Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, Medal of Honor recipient. It was awesome. Yeah.
0: That is awesome. You are still
1: evaluated.
0: (laughs) Wow,
2: Ralph is a schmuck and he'll always be a schmuck. You know, he knew me pretty well.
1: Claim LT, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just an LT. I'm just, I'm just an airman, you know?
2: So yeah, that was, that was a fascinating thing for us is that, cause they say you can't have a break in service. So yeah, they, they had to fill the square. You had to, like, I can't remember how many, you know, if, if it was just one big one or several, I don't, I, I'm sure it was different for everybody. But for me, it, I think it was one.
0: <laughs> so I have two things left and I don't know if you have anything you want to add. When Kurt Mews talked about for nine months being held in a prison in freaking Panama, walking the Appalachian Trail, I stood up at the end of a, our little uh, presentation he had, and I asked a question, and I said, how did you find closure? What was that moment where you finally, like, a lot of people built their dream home, the one they built in their head while they were a POW, whatever it is. So what would you do? And he's like, you know, I took my daughter, and I actually went and hiked the Appalachian Trail and I was like, that was, that's it or what? He's like, you know what I found out? No, it was miserable. It sucked. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a backpacker. You know, here I am. I go and have to freaking backpack in the woods. is garbage. No, I didn't. No, that, not at all. So I always wondered, like, was there a an activity, a defining moment? Did it just take time? What finally brought you closure to, you did not let this define you?
2: Yeah, I think it was a combination of just, like I said, mine was 18 months, so. You know, compared to Everett Alvarez, eight and a half years, you know, mine was just a, a deep breath. Uh, I think some of it was just getting back to your family. Um, talking to the my senior guys there, my mentors, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted my assignment to be. Like, I knew pretty much they, were, they figured, you know, you're going to get whatever you ask for. And they were right. And they said, you know, you should go to flight, you should go to pilot school. They'll let you go. And they were right. Uh, problem is, my vision had deteriorated so bad that I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but it, so I figured, you know, I, I really, I really love to teach. And I said, you know what I think I'd do? I'll go back to Mather and be a flight instructor at nav school. I think I'd like that. I get my master's degree while I'm there. So I kind of thought that those two things would be really good. And that's what I ended up doing.
0: That's amazing. Yeah.
2: So it, it wasn't, there wasn't anything monstrous. I think a lot of it was just, you know, just kind of getting back. A lot of these guys wanted to resume their military careers. That's all a lot of them really wanted was just kind of get back into the game and, uh, and many of them did. I think I did told the story today. One guy, he was a wizard like me, and he came back and he says, you know what, I want to be a dentist. He <laughs> said, okay, you want to go to dental school? Yeah. Boom, went to dental school. Uh, I had a friend of mine in the Navy that uh, lost his thumb with the ejection, you know, so, of course, he was called Fingers. <laughs> and uh, he, had to get some, he had to get some waivers to be able to fly. He was a backseater. He had to get some waivers to fly and stuff, and they did it. You know, he, he found a way to be able to fly and things like that. So they really bent over backwards for us, which was one, another one of these uncomfortable things, which is, you know, of 591, you could do things different than you can for 3 million. But, but it still was uncomfortable knowing so many guys came back, especially with Agent Orange related issues and really nasty stuff that we turned a blind eye to. And that really made us
1: feel bad.
0: I have one more thing. Do you have anything you want to add first?
1: Not to that. No, (laughs) no.
0: Well, this is uh, is my closing remark. I would say go ahead In Jim Shively's book. I think it's a six years a prisoner. One of the closing chapters is called never a bad day. And when you read it, it talks about perspective and it says, how do you have a bad day? Let me lay this out for you. You oversleep. You miss your alarm. Now your kid is late for school. You get a flat tire on your way to take your kid to school, by the way. And for most people, they would crumble. They're having a very bad day. And he talks about throughout this whole process, he usually will smile and laugh. You can't have a bad day anymore. So today, I explained this earlier. When we went to lunch, we're standing there in line. The individuals that were making the food, they were not having a good time. You know, they were very short. They were... uh very snarky. They, mm. they just frowned the whole time. i never, I think I saw one smile from one person mm. and I kept watching you though. I wanted to see how are you interacting at this moment mm. and the whole time you're just, please, thank you smiling. And then I'm looking around at everyone else and I'm just looking at no one's smiling. Everyone's just in their own world at this moment. So for you, for me to watch you mm. interact in this moment of like, look at your perspective on life now. I told you I'm happy to be alive. You are happy. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Don't elated. sweat the small stuff. No. Don't sweat the small. Matter
2: of fact, Paul Galanti, uh, the guy that gave the finger, and, and I have often been mistaken for him because our names are very close, Galati and Galanti. And I told him, I said, I am very proud when people think that I'm you. I said, you should be offended. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, he he in his book he put down a, you know a, a good day for him, was a day that there's a doorknob on the inside of the door. Yes. Which is, you have the option to go somewhere. You have the option to do whatever you want. And sometimes it's just the small stuff. It's the little nuggets of freedom or whatever it is that we take for granted that it's all about perspective, you know. So now it's like, you know, but I told you I'm very impatient. But it's just, sometimes it's just the simple things that we take for granted that we tend to appreciate a little bit more.
0: I know you said it a, a few times today. You keep claiming you're, you're not a hero. Correct. Yeah, you're not a superhero at Correct. all. Correct. You, you I'm not
2: brave. Say, I'm not a hero. Nothing.
0: You were doing your job.
2: I was doing my job. I was proud to be an Air Force officer, and I, I got issues. I got some guilt. I got a lot of stuff like that. But compared to some of these other guys, no contest. Medal of Honor guys, you remember? Way up there. You know, these other guys who were there for six, seven, eight years that I saw really toughed it out. They made us perform better. You know, by comparison, you know, I'm just Air Force guy doing a job. That's all.
0: But as someone told you today, even though you claim you're not, you're a hero. Yeah.
2: Now we will argue for a good (laughs) 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 But I appreciate the opportunity to be on your program tonight. Good questions, by the way. Very nice. Very provocative.
0: Ralph, you're the man. Thank Sir. you. You really are. Well, you. I'm honored to
2: be here when you, you guys put together a great program today, but also tomorrow, POWMIA Day, you know, a little recognition there that you guys do every year. Uh, it's those small things like that that I really enjoy being at because I, 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 I get a chance to remind people of the cause. I get a chance to meet people that I would never meet, and I get to thank them all. Come on. Life is good.
0: One of the closing remarks we always said to uh, all of the students when they were done for the day is we would say, you just experienced a small sample, a couple hours, a few days worth of what some endured for 14 months, six years, Mm, eight years. Yeah, You are standing on the shoulders of giants that came before you. Mm -hmm. So, sir, I would like to say, Thank you for giving us those shoulders to stand yeah. on. You are a giant, and you gave us the foundation to carry on and make the next generation proud. And for that, I want to say, next time you walk by old Glory, <laughs> you look underneath her, and you see that POW MIA flag flying, I bet you'd have a different perspective on
2: yeah. it now. Yep. Yeah, You're very kind, thanks. It's, uh, it's remarkable to see that flag. It means a great
1: deal. you have anything else, Guy? Uh, Mr. Galati, welcome home. God bless you. Thank you. It's great to be home. It's great to be alive. Thank you.
0: And for that, signing out. See you.